So Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all of their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Thank you, Lucy. Do keep that uh, passage of scripture open, and on the inside of your notice sheets, you'll find a quite a simple outline uh, to help us as we go along. It's a new story uh, that we've heard many times in recent years. Someone is hired to fill a public position. A journalist gets picked up by a newspaper. An author is asked to become a government advisor. But soon, rumours begin to circulate about comments that that person has made in the past. Old tweets are unearthed. Comments made in interviews years previously come to light. And soon, there is a hashtag trending on social media demanding that the person be fired for their unacceptable views. The person apologizes and says they've changed since those comments have made, or they try to explain that those quotes are taken out of context, or in some cases that they've been completely made up, but it's not enough. A few days later, sure enough, the person in question has been quietly dropped, and we all congratulate ourselves, because justice has been done. Now, I'm certainly not going to say that every time that happens, it's always a bad thing. But that, at least, is one version of justice that we see today in our world. And I characterize it like this. It is instant, merciless justice. It's instant justice. Outrage spreads at the speed of gigabit internet. The mob forms quickly online, and the pressure builds within days, if not hours. There can be no delay. We want action now. And it's merciless justice. It doesn't matter how, many, how much someone apologizes, it will never be enough. And because it's instant and because it's merciless, it's often false justice. It's often manifestly unfair. On the other hand, people in our world are often denied justice, aren't they? Court cases drag on for years with no resolution until the claimant's money runs out and the action's dropped. Big companies get away with shady practices because they're too big to fail. Corrupt judges take bribes. Corrupt leaders turn a blind eye to the malpractice of the people who are donating big sums to their campaigns. Certain groups of privileged people are unfairly favoured over others, and people from different, less powerful groups suffer injustice as a result. It's no wonder, then, that we've seen in recent years more and more demands for justice in our world, more and more demonstrations and protests boiling over sometimes into violence on our streets. We are a world which craves justice, but we don't know how to get it. 
Will life ever be fair? Where should we turn to to get justice? Who can we rely on to bring justice for us? Well, in this passage today, Matthew claims that the answer is clear. Jesus Christ is the one who will bring justice to this world. You can see that in two places. In verse 18, it says that Jesus will proclaim justice to the nations. In verse 20, uh, sorry, verse, yes, verse 20, he says he will lead justice to victory. The claim of the Bible is that Jesus is the one who will finally do justice in the world. This is not justice for one privileged, powerful group of people, but for all nations. And we're going to see today that in marked contrast to the false, instant, merciless justice of the world, that Jesus brings true, patient, merciful justice. This is a passage that is rich in comfort for us, but that also carries a stern warning. So let's get into the details of this passage today. And the first thing we'll see is that Jesus' justice is true. Let's remember where we are. Let's set the scene. Last week, we saw a confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Israel. They were supposed to be guiding the people to worship and obey God. But by this time, they perverted the word of God into a man-made religion. They'd taken the good commands of God and added a load more stuff to them and used, begun to use those things as a stick to beat people with. They were offering, as we were thinking about earlier, they were offering religion, a system of rules to make you right with God, to give you good relationship with him, to bring you to rest with him. But their rules could never achieve that. All they were doing was burdening people with a load of shame and guilt. And now here is Jesus. Jesus is offering not guilt, but grace. He's offering to remove burdens, to give true rest with God, not through us obeying rules, but through him giving himself for us, the, the good shepherd who came to lift his sheep out of the pit. And the Pharisees, therefore, hate him because he has come to destroy their man-made religion and offer for free what they were making people pay for. So we read the conclusion in verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. I wonder if, if you're with us last week or if, as you're reading those words now, how you feel towards the Pharisees at this point. See, my overriding emotion is anger. Jesus is going about doing good, healing diseases, pronouncing forgiveness, offering rest and grace. And the Pharisees are so annoyed that he's ruining their gig that they just want him dead. What an appalling injustice. And what a dangerous thing to do. After all, Jesus has just said that he is greater than King David and greater than the temple of the Old Testament. And he's been proving it with works of incredible power. So we might be thinking as readers of Matthew's gospel, well, this is ridiculous. Surely they can't win. Surely he's going to stop them. Surely he will pay back their injustice and foil their plans so that he can continue his program of offering rest and so that they will stop burdening people. That's what we might think. In fact, that's what we might crave. These horrible, power-hungry, wicked men, they need surely to be stopped and deposed and judged and sued. But look at what Jesus does. He knows somehow that they're plotting to kill him. So look at verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. 
Jesus walks away from the confrontation. He goes to another place entirely. Even when people follow him and he heals them, he tells them not to talk about him. He goes for a while completely underground. Why? We might be tempted to conclude that Jesus is simply trying to avoid the Pharisees. He knows they're trying to kill him. He doesn't want to die. And so he's just going to lay low for a while until the threat passes. But if we've read the rest of the Gospels, we know that can't quite be right. He is by no means scared of a confrontation with the Pharisees. We're going to look a bit later from a few verses from chapter 23, and we'll see that Jesus is very much prepared to publicly call them out on their injustice and wickedness. And as well as that, in the rest of the Gospels, we read that he is not trying to avoid his death at all. In fact, his death is why he came. So we should be thankful that Matthew explains exactly what's happening. We don't have to guess. Uh, Throughout this book, Matthew repeatedly shows us as readers that Jesus is bringing to completion all the promises of God in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of everything that God has been doing in all his dealings with Israel over thousands of years. And here Matthew says that this withdrawal, this lack of confrontation, is also a fulfillment of Scripture. Let's look at that in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. This is a quote from Isaiah 42 the first of what's called the servant songs in Isaiah. Towards the end of Isaiah's book, God gives several prophecies about a character that he calls his servant. We've already heard from one of those songs in this series in Matthew 11, when Jesus said that his miracles of compassion and healing prove that he was this long-awaited character. He is God's servant. And we see that again uh, here in verse 18. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And so this tells us this first thing that we learn about the justice of Jesus, that it's true, because the repeated idea in this verse is that Jesus is God's choice. Can you see that? God has chosen him. God loves him. God delights in him. Everything that Jesus does is good and right in the eyes of God. His words and his thoughts and his actions are always pleasing to God. And God has put his spirit on Jesus. In the Old Testament, God putting his spirit on someone meant two things. It meant that God was with that person, and it meant that that person was equipped for a certain authoritative role. It was people like kings and prophets that were given God's spirit. And here the servant is too. The servant speaks and acts with God's authority and brings with him the presence and power of God. So why is that such good news for us? Why is that good news for us in a world of injustice? Why is that good news for us, for those who crave justice to be done? It's good news because this is justice from the outside. I don't know if you've ever been on the wrong end of favouritism. The coach is choosing the school football team, and you're hoping to be chosen as the goalkeeper, but the other goalkeeper, who's not as good as you, just happens to be the coach's son. And so he gets picked, and you watch on the sidelines. This is very much a hypothetical situation. I've never been (laughs) picked for anything, anyway. Or, or, 
Or the boss promotes someone ahead of you, and you wonder what you did wrong, and you seem to be working well at the company, you don't get what's going on, and then you overhear the two of them uh, laughing about their golf game at the weekend. Favoritism, bias, partiality, these things corrupt justice. It's why when things go wrong, when there's a report of injustice, we demand an independent investigation. It's because we want a view from the outside, don't we? We want an unbiased, impartial look at things. It's not going to be swayed by biases, by favoritism, by partiality. Now, of course, it's very difficult to achieve in this world, isn't it? Everyone has biases. Everyone gets things wrong, even with the very best of intentions. And if we're feeling a bit cynical, we might add, everyone has their price. But if Jesus is God's choice then this is true justice from the outside. God can never be bribed because he already owns the entire world. What are we going to give him? Uh, God is never biased because he is the creator of all and is therefore impartial. He doesn't play favorites. God never makes a wrong ruling because he knows everything and is all-powerful. God's justice always works to put the world back to rights because he made the world and he designed it. He He knows how it's supposed to work and he can get it back there. So when we hear that Jesus is uniquely the one whom God loves and has chosen and has empowered and authorized, we can be confident that he's exactly the right person to proclaim justice to the nations. And as we read through how he deals with people throughout the Gospels, we can see that enacted very clearly. He speaks truth to power. He knows and understands the secrets of people's hearts. He can not only judge actions, but also motivations. His justice is true. But secondly, Jesus' justice is patient. Look uh, Look with me at verse 19 again. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. Uh, Now, Matthew says what Jesus is doing by withdrawing from the Pharisees is fulfilling these verses. Right? So I think it's fairly clear how verse 19 is fulfilled in what Jesus is doing. The Pharisees are confronting him, accusing him, trying to pick a fight with him, in fact plotting to kill him, but Jesus is not rising to the bait. He does not meet them down at their level by quarreling and shouting in the streets. He doesn't plot to kill them first. He doesn't meet violence with violence. He doesn't depose them by force. He doesn't lead marches and demonstrations against their rule. He doesn't chain himself to the gates of the temple and demand a change in government. In fact, right now, he's barely visible in the public eye. He's disappeared somewhere. He's gone underground. His voice is not even heard in the streets. But what about this language of breaking bruised reeds and not snuffing out smoldering wicks. How is that related to what he's doing? Now, over the years, Christians have found these verses extremely comforting. There is something so tender and precious about the imagery of Jesus coming across a broken plant or a lamp that's spluttering and fading, and rather than crushing it, instead nurturing it gently back to life. And that's certainly a true thing. In fact, here is my copy of the very famous book, uh, The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs, full of pencil marks from 1630. The the book's from 1630, my pencil marks. It's a very, very beautiful book, which I find really helped me understand the gentleness and grace of Jesus. However, now don't worry, we are going to see that these verses are indeed full of precious comfort for Christians, and this book is still great. But what I think is often not appreciated is that the language of the bruised reed and the smoldering wick doesn't come out of nowhere. 
We're not at total liberty just to sort of use our imaginations and try and figure out what these phrases mean out of context. Bible words have Bible meanings, and these phrases have a particular meaning, and perhaps quite a surprising meaning, in the book of Isaiah. So let's take a little step back and remember what's going on in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah's time, the people of Judah had pretty much completely abandoned uh, their trust in God. They'd rebelled against him, they'd turned to idols, they'd disobeyed his laws, they'd forgotten his covenant, and so God threatened to bring his judgment on them as a result, to open them up to, to attack from their neighbors to the north, from Assyria and Babylon. God said through Isaiah, I'm going to bring these nations against you to defeat you and take you into exile. And so Isaiah's message was, look, repent now. Humble yourself before God. Return to him and put your trust in him before the judgment comes. But the kings of Judah did not listen to Isaiah. Instead, they tried to make political alliances with other nations around them, particularly with Egypt. They thought, if we can get Egypt on side, Egypt's massive. If we can get Egypt on side, then we can face down Assyria and Babylon. They will protect us. Isaiah pleaded them with them to trust in God, not to trust in Egypt, but they didn't listen, and they were overwhelmed by first Assyria and then Babylon. And when the leader of the Assyrian army rode up to the gates of Jerusalem, here's what he said to the people. It's on the screen from Isaiah 36. He said, you say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. Now, the word's translated differently. It's splintered instead of bruised, but it's exactly the same Hebrew phrase, and this is the only other time the phrase appears in the Bible. Who is the bruised reed in Isaiah? Well, in the first place, it's Egypt. You would use a reed for a cane, a walking stick, but a broken, a bruised, a splintered reed could not hold your weight. It would break and the shards would go through your palm and hurt you. You can't rely on a bruised reed. That's the point. What about the smoldering wick? Well, just one chapter later, Isaiah mentions that too. Again on the screen, Isaiah 43. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and there lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, stuffed, snuffed out like a wick. Okay, so you see again, that's Egypt as well, isn't it? Egypt thought of themselves as such a great nation, a great burning lamp in the middle of the world, but at the time of the Exodus, when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, the chariots and horsemen of that nation were snuffed out, like a smoldering wick in the waters of the Red Sea. Here is the point then that God is making throughout Isaiah. The judgment of God is coming and you can't avoid it by trusting in anything else. Nothing you do, nothing you rely on can save you. Nations and leaders and armies and strategies might look strong, but they are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. They will only hurt you if you rely on them and they are going to be destroyed, snuffed out in the judgment along with everything else. Bruised reeds and smoldering wicks in Isaiah are things that you cannot rely on to save you from God's judgment because they themselves are under God's judgment. And yet, Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12 says that when the servant comes, he will not break the bruised reeds. He will not snuff out the smoldering wicks. What's going on then? Well, we need to notice one word in the middle of verse 20 in Matthew 12. It's quite a scary word. Let's look at it again. A bruised reed he will not break, 
and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until, until he leads justice to victory. You see, the servant is going to bring justice. He will bring justice on the Pharisees because the Pharisees too are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. They were supposed to be guides for God's people, leaders who the people could rely on and lean on to lead them in the worship of God, shining lights for the people to follow. Yet look how Jesus speaks to them later on the screen in Matthew 23, where Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Jesus is not afraid of a confrontation, is he? But the point is this, you can't trust the Pharisees to bring you out from under God's judgment because they're under God's judgment. And we saw why last week. It's because they are peddling religion. They're calling people to follow their rules and saying, this is the way to be friends with God. But they're bruised reeds who cannot be relied on. They're smoldering wicks who give off no light and will be snuffed out in the judgment. Yet right now, Jesus has not come to bring justice on the Pharisees. They're plotting to kill him, but he has no intention of killing them. Why not? Because his justice is patient. Charles Spurgeon, uh, commenting on this passage, said this, He will, Jesus will in the end, victoriously judge those hypocrites who were useless as bruised reeds and offensive as smoking flax, as a smoldering wick. But he would not do this during his first mission to men. He is in no haste to destroy every petty opposition. See, this was the mistake that many people made about Jesus at the time. They imagined that when God's king came, his Messiah, he would immediately sweep away all opposition defeat the occupying Romans, depose the corrupt Pharisees, and set up a new glorious kingdom in the middle of the earth. They expected him to come in power and judgment and justice and Jesus' will. But not yet. On his first coming, he spent more time quietly teaching 12 disciples than he did confronting the injustices of the world. He spent more time healing people in the quiet rural backwaters of Galilee than taking the fight to Jerusalem, the seat of power. He spent more time eating meals with tax collectors and sinners than working to overthrow corrupt rulers. So if Jesus is not bringing immediate instant justice, what is he doing? Matthew tells us in verse 18 that Jesus, the beloved servant, has come to proclaim justice. To say to the world that there is a God who cares about right and wrong. A God who has the desire and the power to put the world to rights again. A God is going to end oppression and injustice and unfairness. And all of his miracles, even these quiet, out-of-the-way healings in the backwaters of Galilee, demonstrate that. Jesus is showing that he is the one who can be relied on to fix a broken world. But he's going to do it in his proper time. And that's because finally, his justice is merciful. We love, don't we, uh, to, divide, to divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys. When my children play sort of imaginative games at home, they debate for a while who's going to be the goody and who's going to be the baddie. And that's because that's nice and simple and straightforward and black and white. My youngest daughter, Hannah, doesn't pretend to be a conflicted anti-hero with a mysterious past <laughs> or a rough diamond with a heart of gold. No, she's just Pikachu. It's just, it's just easier. 
And it'd be nice to do that here too, wouldn't it? The bad guys are the Pharisees, boo, hiss, you know, moustache-twirling evil monsters. The good guys are the disciples and the crowds following Jesus to be healed. They're they're on side, aren't they? They're the good guys. But the world is not so simple. Not long from now, these same disciples will deny and desert Jesus. Not long from now, these same crowds will be yelling, crucify him at Pontius Pilate. Not long from now, Pharisees like Paul the Apostle will be taking the good news of Jesus to all corners of the Mediterranean. It wasn't so simple in Isaiah's day either. God's people, Israel, were under threat, oppressed by the Assyrians, abandoned by the Egyptians, eventually hauled into exile by the Babylonians. They were poor and needy refugees, stripped from their homeland, victims of injustice. But they were also sinners and rebels against their gods, who had abandoned God for idols, who ignored and mistreated God's prophets, And in one sense, they got what they deserved. We love to divide the world into black and white, into goodies and baddies. We would love to divide the world into the unreliable bruised reeds, the people who can't be relied on, and us, the poor innocent victims who are just looking for help. But it won't wash. Israel in Isaiah's day needed to be warned not to rely on Egypt, who were enemies of God, and therefore would be hopeless against God's judgment. But Israel, too, were enemies of God, hopeless against God's judgment. The crowds in Jesus' day needed to hear that the Pharisees were hypocrites who could not bring you to God, who wanted the Son of God killed. But the crowds too were hypocrites who accepted healing from Jesus, yet also wanted him dead. And we too need to know this today. We want justice to be done, don't we? And that's right, because in many ways we are victims and sufferers, and God promises to bring justice on those who oppress others. God is not corrupt. He is not impartial. He will never turn a blind eye to wickedness. He will call everything to account in the end. And that is good news. It's good news for the oppressed and the victims, for the people who have relied on others for help and for justice and found them to be hopeless and been hurt in the process. But it's bad news if we too are hopeless. If we are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks as well. If we are unreliable, weak sinners who cannot stand in God's judgment, then when justice is done, even as our oppressors are crushed and snuffed out, then so will we be. Remember, the ones who the Pharisees converted to their burdensome religion are called by Jesus, sons of hell. So praise the Lord with me for verse 21, which says, In his name the nations will put their hope. This is perhaps the most surprising verse in this very surprising passage. Remember, it's still Isaiah speaking. Isaiah was prophesying into a context where the nations were attacking and deporting God's people. Yes, the nations are being used by God to bring his judgment, but they were very much God's enemies. They were idolaters and God-haters. And so when Isaiah first said what Matthew quotes in verse 18, that the servant will proclaim justice to the nations, then the people might well have heard this as God's going to bring justice on the nations, that would make sense. The nations are the bad guys. The servant's going to bring justice to the nations. Great. That means all the nations get destroyed. The nations which had oppressed them and enticed them into idolatry and were dragging them into exile. But as as Isaiah goes on, we learn that's not what he means. He means that the nations too will put their hope in the servant. The nations too will receive justice for them, not against them. Isaiah wanted his people to know that there is hope even for people like the Egyptians 
and the Assyrians, even for the enemies of God's people. At one point in Isaiah, God promises this on the screen. Isaiah 19. In that day, there will be a... Is it on the screen? No, never mind. Oh, it is. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. And the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. This is why Isaiah can say that in Jesus, the nations will put their hope. And this is why Jesus can withdraw from the Pharisees and not immediately judge them. Here is why Jesus keeps spending time with the crowds that he knows was going to eventually turn on him and call for his murder. Here is why he spends time teaching the disciples that are all going to deny him and desert him at the end. He is patient with all these people, with the disciples, with the crowds, with the Pharisees alike, because all alike are hopeless sinners, bruised reeds, smoldering wicks. All alike are under God's judgment and all alike are offered mercy. The disciples, the crowds, the Pharisees alike, all are given the opportunity to repent and avoid the judgment they deserve. But if we've been paying attention, we should be asking a very important question, which is how? How is that possible? How are sinners and rebels offered mercy when God is proclaiming impartial, perfect, true justice through his servants? Well, it's because it's in the work of the suffering servant that justice and mercy meet. See, when the Pharisees do kill Jesus, when they crush him, when they snuff him out, they think they've put an end to his meddling. But all they've done is achieved God's plan. When Jesus is crushed, he is crushed instead of all the bruised reeds under his care. When Jesus is snuffed out by the waters of God's judgment, he ensures that the smoldering wicks stay dry and stay alight. And so true impartial justice is done to all, and true mercy is available to all. And so as we conclude, I'd like to ask you a question. I'd like to ask you what time it is. I don't mean you should check how long I've been speaking. You should never ask that question. What I mean is, where are we in God's plan? Well, what time is it in salvation history? The answer from this passage is simple. We are living right now in the patience of God's servant Jesus. That's what time it is. We live in the patience of God's servant Jesus. Later on in the New Testament, Peter makes this very clear from 2 Peter 3 on the screen. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what time it is today. We live in the patience of God's servant Jesus. So let me finish with a couple of implications. And I want to address us as a church family first, because this helps us understand and remember why we exist and what we ought to be doing with our lives. We live in the patience of God's servant Jesus. This is the reason his world is still turning. This is what God is doing, patiently offering grace and mercy in Jesus to repentant sinners. And so that is what we should be about too. We might be tempted to use our our time and our energy and our resources to try and fix the injustices we see in our world. 
to campaign and demonstrate and protest and make this world a fairer and juster place. And I do want to say there is certainly a place for that. We ought to try to do good to all. We ought to raise a Christian voice in the public uh, square. That is all to the good. Don't mishear me. But we need to know that we as a church are not going to fix this world because that's Jesus' job. The key role we have as we live in the patience of Jesus is not to seek justice, but to proclaim it. To say to our world that even if justice is not being done, it will be. To herald the coming of Jesus as judge and to point people to the cross where justice and mercy meet. Now that might be a very quiet work, a gentle work, an unimpressive work, a long, slow, patient work where no one hears the voice of Moreland's church in the streets, perhaps we could put it that way. But that is the way of the cross. That is the way of Jesus. And so that is the way we must walk to. But the second implication, final one, I want to address to all of us. What is the message we all need to take away from this passage today? Wherever you are with Jesus, we need to have the humility to know that we are bruised reeds. To know that me and you, we are hopeless before the judgment seat of God because of our sin and rebellion against, against him. Now, some of us might feel very bruised. We might feel our weakness and our hopelessness and our helplessness and our guilt and our shame. Some of us might not. But whether we feel it or no, we need to hear the warning and we need to hear the invitation. We are living in the patience of God's servant Jesus. He is so gracious and merciful that his patience may last an awfully long time. But his judgment when it comes will be true. It will be impartial. It will be perfect. So humble yourself now. Come to Jesus. Pray to him and ask for forgiveness and mercy. And you will find that because he was crushed, because he was snuffed out, then you never will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your servant, Jesus. Thank you for his true and impartial and perfect justice. Thank you for his patient mercy. And thank you that he has delayed his return and the, the, the justice for all this world long enough that we have heard. We have heard of his grace. We have heard his invitation. I pray that those of us who have already accepted his welcome would come to Jesus again to find mercy and grace and that we would be those who join him in walking the way of the cross, in gentleness and quietness and patience, offering mercy through the gospel to all those we meet. And I pray that if any, any here who have not yet accepted Jesus as their Lord, that today they would put their trust in Jesus, they would come to him as weary and burdened people, bruised reeds and smouldering wicks, and find rest for their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.